Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. much that's wonderful uh if we could ju- this, this, jump back to those sermon slides warren that'd be great thank you great so uh to you might have picked up he, he was very clever uh he flatters felix at the beginning of the the scene uh who's the governor and the judge and from what we know of felix flattered and uh, and bribed as well so listen again to how Tertullus begins He says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. That's what we call buttering somebody up. And and then Tertullus brings three charges against Paul, that he's a troublemaker, that he's caused riots everywhere, and that he tried to desecrate the temple. And, And Paul denies all of these charges. But for for Governor Felix, nothing mattered more than peace. His job was to make sure that this region, that was a tense region where Romans and Jewish people were often in conflict, that he could make people happy and bring about peace. He lose his job as governor, which he does a couple of years down the line. If Paul was a troublemaker, Felix had very good reason to get rid of him. And so Paul denies these charges, but the one thing he does admit to is that he's a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus. But all other charges are false, he says. In fact, Paul says, the people who made these charges against me in the beginning aren't even here, so you can't, this is, this is a kangaroo court, you can't actually charge me with anything unless the witnesses are here. Paul knew his Roman legal system almost as well as Tertullus did. But Felix finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he could set Paul free and risk the rage and rebellion of the Jewish leaders. On the other hand, he could execute Paul, a Roman citizen, which would be ignoring proper process and risk the wrath of his own people. So what would you do if you were Felix in that situation? Well, Felix, like any good politician, acted in a time-honoured political manner, and apologies to any politicians out there, he did nothing. <laughs> he, locked, uh, he locked Paul in jail, gave no verdict, and hoped that the problem would go away. Well, he actually hoped for a little bit more than that, because we're told that Felix met with Paul quite regularly because he was hoping Paul might offer him some money and bribe his way out of jail. But Paul didn't offer a bribe, and so he sat in jail for over two years in limbo, until Felix was replaced by another governor named Festus, which, and we'll see, that, see Festus in our next scene. The point I want to take away from this first little section is the Roman justice system was a circus, at least in this particular circumstance. They weren't, the Roman system was not designed to make these kinds of judgment calls. Truth doesn't always win, despite what we would like to think. 
Scene, this is scene two, we're looking at scene two now. We'll have our uh, Reader's Theatre people up in a second, but just to set the scene again, two years now have passed since our first scene. There's sort of next to each other in the Bible, but two years have passed. It's a drawn out period for Paul. Governor Felix has been deposed and Festus is now governor of Caesarea. There's been riots and conflict in the region. And so Felix is sort of kicked out, Festus comes in. And the Jewish leaders, they see this new opportunity, a new governor, let's try this again. Let's uh, see if we can get a bit further with Festus about getting Paul uh, dealt with. Uh, and, and the scene we've got here is that Festus, who's the new governor, he's on good terms with King Agrippa. King Agrippa was the king of this whole region. Uh, and so the governors would work, were really appointed by Agrippa. So Agrippa's got a lot of power over Festus. Festus comes to Agrippa, Agrippa comes to their town and, and, and Festus says, look, we've got this situation with Paul. The Jewish leaders, they're, they're, uh, they want me to do something about him. What should I do? I'm not sure how to handle this situation. And so the king, king Agrippa says, well, I'd love to meet this Paul. I'd love to chat to him. Let's, uh, let's arrange to meet. And so if we could get our Reader's Theatre people up to take their place and I'll introduce them again. So you might imagine a scene a little bit like the one on the screen there. And seated at one end on a throne, we have King Agrippa II and his sister, Bernice. That's right, they're looking very, very stately there. So they're dressed in fine clothes, they're surrounded by guards who bring them in, not taking place in a court this time, but in a kingly type hall. And as they arrive, trumpets sound and everyone kneels. <laughs> These are powerful people. And seated to the side, slightly less glamorous than Agrippa, sits Festus, the governor of Caesar Caesarea, who's unsure what to do with Paul. Around the hall are soldiers and powerful, prominent men of the city watching with interest. And in chains, dirty and unkempt, perhaps after two years in prison, stands Paul preparing to be questioned for the upteenth time. They give you a hard time, don't they, Paul? <laughs> we'll hand over to uh, the Reader's Theatre to take us through this passage. So the story continues, picking up at chapter 25, verse 23, which is two years later. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome 
without specifying the charges against him. You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. <laughs> King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. And therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and if they are willing, they can testify that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised to our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see as they fulfilled, as they earnestly serve God night and day. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And it is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another and have to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the high priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing all around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness to what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the, the, their, their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. 
Most excellent, Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to you may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thanks once again. How we could go back to those slides? Thanks, uh, Warren. So Festus began. He begins by saying that he's decided to send this man to to Caesar, sent Paul to Caesar, to, to Rome. Paul, in fact, had asked to go to Rome. He'd appealed to Caesar. But Festus doesn't even know what to write to Caesar. He, he's sending him to Caesar, but th this is how confusing this whole situation is for him. What, he doesn't even know what the charges are. What do I actually write? And it's more evidence of what a circus this, this whole thing is. And then Paul gets this opportunity to speak before King Agrippa. And, and Agrippa knew the Jewish ways. In fact, he was quite familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. There's even a suggestion that he uh, followed the Hebrew scriptures. And he was known as a mediator between Rome and the Jewish people. And, and Paul's appealing to his knowledge. You, you know what I'm talking about, Agrippa. You hear that all the way through. And as Paul speaks, he reminds Agrippa of what a zealous Jewish man he has been. He's not an enemy of the Jews, but a faithful Jew who's only speaking what Moses and the prophets pointed to from the beginning that the Messiah has come and has risen from the grave. And that's the point, I don't know if you picked up in both passages, it keeps coming back to this point. It's about the resurrection. At the end of the day, the real problem, the real conflict between the Jewish leaders and Paul is that Paul claims a man has risen from the dead and he is the Messiah. And it's that, those words that really uh, cause Festus to interrupt him and say, Paul, you're insane. You may have received visions and lost your sight and seen a figure appear to you on the road to Damascus, but a man risen from the dead? Come on. Come on, Paul. Can you even hear yourself? That's, that's ridiculous. But Paul won't back down and he even tries to uh, preach the gospel to King Agrippa himself that he might understand Jesus is the fulfilment of the Hebrew scriptures. But like all the times before this trial ends, there's no clear outcome once again. Paul follows a resurrected king. And it's this fact that angers his opponents and dumbfounds his judges. And so the circus continues. Paul is shipped off to Rome despite there being no clear charge against him. Who knows what Festus ended up actually writing to Caesar. Paul finds himself in this limbo state. Nobody knows what to do with him. The world, even a powerful king, still at the end of this passage doesn't know what to do with the follower of a resurrected king. 
I think we're going to sing together again now, and then we'll uh, wrap it all up. Book, no legal code, spelling out how to deal with people who believe there had been a resurrection. And it, as I said before, this wasn't a situation that Roman authorities knew what to do with, or should have been in a position to judge on, really. I get the sense that they were flabbergasted, completely confused by Paul and his beliefs. They couldn't find any reason to charge him, but they couldn't risk the revolt of the Jewish leaders either. And I wonder, as we reflect on these passages and the situation that Paul found himself in before the courts of the world, the courts of the empires of the world, whether anything has changed all that much in this regard in the last 2,000 years. Because it seems to me that our world still doesn't quite know what to do with a resurrected king or with people who follow and claim that there is a man who has risen from the dead in history, a man named Jesus. Because on the one hand, I observe this at least to some degree, I think, that the world is happy to accept the good that the church does and so the ways in which Christians might work towards seeking the good of society when they care for the poor and the marginalised. Yet at the same time, followers of Jesus are considered pretty weird, even dangerous at times, because we won't ally ourselves to the ways of the world, just as Paul wouldn't ally himself to Rome or the Jewish leaders. And look, at times we need to be honest, the church has deserved this reputation for its significant failures, but... But I want to suggest that even when God's people are at their best, living the kingdom of God in life-bringing ways, we will still often be seen as an embarrassment, a nuisance, perhaps, like, like Paul. Paul had done nothing wrong. All he had claimed was that Jesus was risen from the dead. And, and, and I want to suggest one of the key reasons why we see this tension is because we follow a resurrected king. So let's explore that idea for a moment. The very concept of resurrection doesn't fit into our world's categories. Our experience of life, particularly in the West, and our rational view of the world has no such room for an event like that. If you meet people on the street and, and talk of a generic God, you'll probably strike up a pretty interesting conversation with people. But tell, a, tell people about a man who rose from the dead named Jesus, who really rose from the dead in history, and you'll get some very strange looks indeed. It's radical. It's irrational, at least according to a culture that has little room for transcendent categories. One of, one of the reasons I think that resurrection is so incomprehensible is that death and finitude are ingrained into our mindset. They're so much a part of how we see life. I, I remember a song from my youth with the, with the lyrics, from the moment you're born, you start dying. And you might have heard other quotes similar to that in other contexts as well. Life, according to our world, is framed, imagine like a picture frame, and life is, is the picture. Around, around that picture of life framed, or, or another image, book-ended, a picture of a book-end. 
We see life, life by our world is viewed as being bookended by death, framed by death. And if that is true, then this life that we live is all squashed into this brief and critical moment that we have to make the, make the most of before that bookend of death arrives. When we see life as being framed or bookended by death, time becomes anxiously precious. Efficiency is everything because we are finite. Accumulation is the best that we can hope for. And we end up scrambling for scraps, desperately trying to build our sandcastle empires before the waves of time eventually come and wash them away, inevitably wash them away in that mindset. And this reality is so much a part of how our world thinks that the idea of someone rising from the dead as the first fruits of new creation is just unthinkable. Christopher Watkins, uh, an author, writes, and, and this can be a bit hard to follow, it's a bit um, verbose, but we'll go through it slowly. Uh, he says this, uh, ignore the first bit, the, the resurrection is the cornerstone of a global Christian ethos. In other words, a, a worldwide Christian way of being, a way of living. It's a way of acting towards ourselves, the world, and other people. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying? Resurrection is a way of acting towards ourselves, the world, and other people. It can perhaps be characterised as, as a being towards life, for which sure hope of eternal communion with Christ in a redeemed and transformed world is the fundamental reality haunting every word, every thought, and every action. Let me try and paraphrase that a little bit for you. I, I, I think what Christopher Watkins is saying is that life is not a closed system with death as a bookend that's condensed into this fleeting moment. But actually, life is an open-ended reality that's freed and stretching into eternity. In other words, if Jesus is risen, everything we place value in is unravelled and upended. It would mean that instead of living towards death, life is bookended with more and more life. That there is more time than we can possibly imagine. That there is more hope than we ever realised. And the things that we value of life, power and accumulation, those things lose their luster if we see life bookended with more life. The interesting thing is, I think the Jewish leaders understood this more than most. They seem to get it. If the resurrection was real, then all that they had spent their lives working towards, power, authority, control, self-acclamation, it would all be somewhat meaningless. They knew that if new life had come, they would have to bend the knee rather than have people grovelling at their feet. 
One of the challenges, though, that this raises for us is that we live in a world that prioritises and structures social life with the assumption that we are living towards death. That's the assumption. That's the cultural waters that we're swimming in. All around us, we're being trained to think that way, to accumulate, to climb the ladder, to suck the marrow out of each moment, to be as happy as we possibly can in the small time that we have. One of the things that Caroline shared before that I found really interesting, Caroline, was when you said when you were diagnosed, there was like a, a, a pe people's opinion of you, you felt went down straight away without, and it was, it, 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 what people didn't even make the conscious choice, it just was like a, flick, a switch that flicked on. And I wonder whether a view of life as being this finite time book ended by death causes us to, de uh, to value things in an incorrect way as well. So we start to value people based on efficiency, based on what they can get out of that short time that we live. But if resurrection is bookended with more life and more life and time is not urgent, maybe it teaches us to view other people differently as well. A friend of mine who was a minister in the Uniting Church, a friend of our family who uh, lived life in a wheelchair, she said she had the gift of slowness. And that has always stuck with me. Maybe we need to rethink how we see and value people because of the resurrection. And so we're living in this world that's training us to think of life as a closed system and at the same time, we have a resurrected king who tells us new life has come and we are living towards more life. And Jesus says in John 5, uh, we quoted this a few weeks ago, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus, particularly in the book of John, eternal life is a present reality, not just something for the future. A present reality. So resurrection is not just an event in history, though it is that. It's not just a reality that we look forward to in the future, though it is that as well. Resurrection, life bookended with more life, is the reality that we live in now. This life is just the prologue to a never-ending story. Time is not as urgent as the world would tell you it is. I know that's hard for us to grapple with when we, our lives feel so full and we, we uh, feel as if there's never enough time to get our to-do lists finished. I love to-do lists, but, but I, I wonder if in part I love them because I've been trained to squeeze as much, time, as much into each moment as I can and ticking off that list thrills that part of me that sees life as a closed system. Resurrection would tell us, instead, that there is time enough to be still and to know God. There is time enough to be present with people and to listen. Sucking the marrow out of this life is not what matters most because there will be countless, infinite moments of joy as we live into life and more life. Resurrection sets us free to love others now and sacrifice for them. To serve when it's costly. 
It sets us free to live as lunatics in a world that's framed by death. Festus was right. Paul was insane. He was living in a whole different reality that could never make sense until you encounter the resurrection and the life. We live in this age with our hearts and our minds split in two. We have one foot in this world that sees death as the bookend, even as we follow a king who's brought new creation into our world so that life is bookended with more life. And we feel the push and the pull of both worlds. We feel the anxiety and the pressure of this world, even as we taste and long for the freedom that comes from living towards life. We find ourselves, I think, sometimes like Paul, feeling like we're in limbo at times, not quite fitting in perhaps, like something's not quite right, like we're in the world but not of it. But that's how it's meant to be. Because in Jesus, we have crossed over from death to life now and we now live towards more life. Loving and sometimes compassionately disrupting a world that doesn't know what to do with resurrection, even as it secretly groans for eternity. How about we pray? Lord God, uh, the Roman authorities didn't know what to do with Paul because he talked about resurrection and they didn't have the categories for how to deal with that. And Lord, we, we live in a world that really doesn't have the categories still to know what to do with resurrection, especially in this very rationalistic Western society that we, we live in, where truth is only what we can touch and see. Lord, uh, but you invite us to be people of resurrection, people who believe and trust that Jesus has risen from the dead in history, and that life is now bookended with more life. And that upends, unravels everything we understand about the pri what, what we prioritise, what we find value in, now here in this life. Lord God, uh, this week and in the weeks to come, may you help us to really dwell on the wonder of life leading to more life and how that completely changes the way we live right now in the present. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have challenged your view of time by running over time. Um,